It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an iHeart Original. It's August 21st. 1696. It's a nearly moonless night, and it's dry after a summer and spring of wind and rain. We're in a ramshackle house surrounded by a moat in Westminster, just a stone's throw away from the famous abbey. It's a quiet night. A nameless man is inside, maybe suffering through a restless sleep or maybe pacing the floor nervously. There's a thud at the door, the sound of wood rapping on wood. Open this door at once. Agents of the Warden of the Royal Mint. The Warden had heard from his informants that this house was a center for clipping and counterfeiting. We know they're in here. The agents bust their way in, pushing past our man, and they start turning the place over, searching for counterfeiting tools and clipped coin. Evidence. Yeah, look, look everywhere. Leave nothing unturned. But our man's ready. He's planned for this. He quickly scuttles out a window and crosses the rain-swollen moat on a plank of wood that's been left for precisely this purpose. He escapes, leaving the agents empty-handed. No evidence, no suspect, nothing. Damn it, where are they? But three days later, our man is caught. And this time, he doesn't run. He can't run. Instead... This nameless informant points a finger at one Henry Atkinson and his wife, Jane. Henry Atkinson, who also goes by Atkins, him and his wife, she's Jane. Them's the ones you want. The informant also told the agents where to find the Atkinson's tools. They'd cleverly sunk some of them in the moat by the root of a willow tree. The warden's agents searched the house again. This time finding the tools where the informant said they'd be. Plus, more stuffed under a floorboard in the attic. The Atkinsons were arrested, and after a short stay in Newgate, the case against them was brought to trial. The trial took place at the Sessions House, better known as the Old Bailey, on the 9th of September. 
The Sessions House had been built adjacent to Newgate in the previous century, specifically to hold trials. It was called the Old Bailey because it was built in the space inside the curtain wall, the part of a fortification called a bailey. Prisoners were brought over from the jail to stand in what was essentially an open-air theater with only three walls. This was to reduce the spread of disease. At this point, Isaac Newton had been warden for more than four months, and he was a quick learner, obviously. The witness will state that he saw Henry Atkinson, also known as Atkins, and his wife, Jane, of St. Martin's in the Fields Parish, clipping 150 of the Crown's shillings and falsely coining 260 shillings. It's not true. It's a lie. The Atkinsons didn't really stand a chance. They would not have had a lawyer to defend them or to point out that maybe the testimony of the guy literally found at the scene of the crime wasn't terribly trustworthy. All they would have had is their own word and other people, not enough people, to act as character witnesses against meticulous Isaac Newton and his army of thief-takers and witnesses. The jury found them guilty of both indictments, according to the court records. The sentence? Death. Henry was executed at the Tyburn Tree. Jane pled her belly, meaning that she claimed to be pregnant to escape the gallows. It worked, but there's no record of what happened to her next. The Atkinson's conviction demonstrated that the Newton who stood in Sessions' house, witnesses at the ready, who milked his information network for leads on coiners and clippers, who had an information network, was not the same Newton who first walked into the Mint back in May. This Newton knows what he's doing. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law, an iHeart original podcast. Episode 5, Crime and Punishment, 17th Century Style. One, the oath. So I'm sitting having a pint at the Old Bell Tavern. This is a very historic pub, and it would definitely, definitely have been here during the time that Isaac Newton was warden of the Royal Mint. And it's very likely that a pub just like this, if not this pub, would have been a place that Isaac Newton would have met with informants. This would have been the kind of place where Newton would have asked prisoners to come out of the jail, be brought by guards, and where he would have met with them to talk about information, what he could get out of them. Ferreting out informants and doing deals with snitches in dirty pubs, representing the crown in front of judges and juries and prosecuting counterfeiters and clippers, sending people to the gallows. This was not the job Isaac Newton thought he was getting. When Charles Montague, Chancellor of the Exchequer, offered Newton the job, 
he told him that being warden has not too much business to require more attendance than you may spare. But Montague hadn't reckoned on a few things. The recoinage that Newton was sorting out and the epidemic of counterfeiters and clippers that Newton, as warden, as the crown's magistrate, was contractually obligated to pursue. When Newton became warden of the Royal Mint, he took an oath to protect the Mint's secret coining and edging machinery. I swear that I will not reveal or discover to any person or persons whatsoever the new invention of rounding the money and making the edges of them with letters or grainings or either of them directly or indirectly. So help me God. He took that oath and all it implied very, very seriously. Unfortunately, previous wardens hadn't. Now, clippers and counterfeiters had done serious damage to the country's economy, but that wasn't the only damage they'd done. The crimes of counterfeiting and clipping weren't just economic ones. They were socially subverting ones as well. They undermined governmental authority. But remember, in the 17th century, there's no police, no agency charged with apprehending criminals. That wouldn't happen until 1829 with the formation of the Metropolitan Police Force. In fact, for most of English history, There was no dedicated police force because individuals were obligated to report crime and pursue criminals. This was what was called hue and cry, and it had been part of the legal framework since 1285. Ah! Basically, if a citizen saw a crime happening, they were obligated to start shouting and yelling until the suspect was caught and put into the custody of a constable or justice of the peace. Don't just stand there! Do something! Oh, oh uh, yeah, get him! Get him! Before he escapes, he's a thief! And if you heard someone shouting thief or murder, then you were obligated to join that hue and cry and pursue the offender too. Come on, everyone! He's heading for the alley! This is a system of justice in which everyone, more or less, was deputized. But by the time Newton is in London, the system of individual responsibility for the greater good is showing its cracks. People in this growing city are increasingly anonymous, and they're finding it easier and easier to ignore that duty. So you had large cities like London, um, where you didn't know your next door neighbor, or you didn't know the people down the street, and people could travel quite easily from one area to the other. So... When I had my pint at the Old Bell, where Newton might have once interrogated prisoners and paid off informants, I wasn't alone. Uh, My name's Harry Potter, believe it or not. I'm a criminal barrister, but I'm also a historian. I've written several books on criminal uh, justice, uh, history of the common law, uh, history of prisons, and the history of capital punishment. London, at the time Newton was patrolling the streets, so to speak, was seeing a rise in crime. More people, more opportunity, more crime. When you're walking the street, you have your pocket watch and you have your purse or handkerchief. And it was quite easy for people to steal those particular items and run away and not get caught because there was no police force in in the sense that we would understand. But creating an official or governmentally backed police force, that wasn't even an idea at the time. Because the, the theory was, if there's little means of preventing crime, we need big means of deterring it. 
The solution to rising crime in the 17th and 18th centuries, as it turns out, was capital punishment. It was probably accepted by, certainly by the authorities and by quite a lot of other people, uh, that if you had very draconian punishments for relatively minor offences, that would stop people committing crime. And that, of course, is why um, those who were executed were executed publicly. And that brings us to Newton's other role as prosecutor, as the guy getting those people to the gallows. Newton was, essentially, both a cop and a prosecutor. With no police force, there could be no bright line between those two roles. This meant that Newton had to be thinking about how to make a case stick from the very beginning of his investigations. Also, at this time, we're moving away from medieval methods of justice. Trial by ordeal, for example, had largely fallen out of practice by this century, except when it came to witches. Dunk her! She's a witch! And we're moving into something more recognizable, but not totally modern. You have a judge presiding over the case. You have a jury that would be deciding on, on, on guilt or innocence. And there would be certain uh, norms of evidence rather than rules of evidence. But this was still a system that dramatically disadvantaged the accused. When we say that the Atkinsons didn't really have a chance, we mean it. The jury needed to be shown convincing evidence to convict, but the presumption of innocence, reasonable doubt, these were ideas that were only just about now being expressed. Juries were chosen from a very narrow pool of mostly wealthier white men of good standing. So that had to have an impact on who was likely to be convicted. The defendant's in a very different position because often he doesn't even know what the charges are. Um, and certainly he wouldn't know the names of the prosecution witnesses or the nature of the evidence that had been accrued against him. So it was then very much more difficult for the defendant to produce witnesses on his side or even character witnesses. And, and often you didn't know the trial date. Um, so, you know, if you've got a witness in Wiltshire and the trial might be sometime in June, uh, you can't really expect them to come up to London and spend a, a month in London waiting for a trial that may or may not take place. So the defense were disadvantaged, and that's... Of course, some people were still acquitted. Newton had learned that the hard way when nine alleged clippers and coiners that he'd brought in were found not guilty in July 1696. Juries were sometimes reluctant to convict because the punishment was so final. Some people suggested that relatively milder punishments, such as facial disfigurement or hard labor, might induce juries to convict more often. And then there was that 40-pound reward informers got for snitching. Observers had a hard time believing that people weren't tempted to lie by what was a lot of money, around 10,000 pounds or nearly $14,000 now. Convicts could also be pardoned and people under suspicion could be cleared if they turned informant. But there was also this, too. The threat of death just wasn't enough to deter the dedicated coiners and clippers. Nor was the opprobrium of the rest of society, because really, people did not like clippers and coiners. This was not a crime that garnered any sympathy at all. Counterfeiters were well aware of the severity of the punishment for the crime, and yet went on their merry way in large numbers, simply because the profits were so great. It's a bit like drug dealing now. Um, in this country, supplying Class A drugs gets very heavy sentences. But the rewards are enormous. 
So if Newton is going to catch and convict William Chaloner, as well as the loads of other coiners and clippers nibbling away at the nation's economic strength, he was going to have to start thinking like a scientist. A scientist detective. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act 2. Isaac Newton, Met Detective. Newton's appointment to Warden essentially made him a detective and a prosecutor. Not that he wanted either role. He even tried to get out of it. After two months on the job, Newton wrote to the Treasury to complain. I do not find that the prosecuting of coiners was imposed upon any of my predecessors, 
nor is there any reward or encouragement appointed for my service in these matters, nor am I provided with any competent assistance to enable me to grapple with an undertaking so vexatious and dangerous as this. Therefore, I humbly pray that it may not be imposed upon me any longer. The Treasury, however, disagreed. This was his job. So Newton once again rolled up his sleeves and got to work. Chris Barker, historian at the Royal Mint. The interesting thing is that despite pushing back and continually pushing back and saying, look, don't give this to me, give this to somebody else more qualified, give this to somebody else from a a more legal perspective, he does throw himself into it. So this is a man that despite loathing this actual work is doing an awful lot of it in a way that you might expect from a police inspector and a judge and prosecution today in many ways. You'd think that a man who'd spent his entire adult life cloistered behind the ivy-clad walls of rural academia would have no idea where to start in trying to ferret out counterfeiters. But what Newton had going for him was what made him a weirdo at Cambridge and then a rock star mathematician. His relentless, remorseless focus on dismantling and solving a problem. Just as he had approached the problem of the great recoinage, Newton dove into the archives. He compiled a history of all the cases of prosecuted coiners and clippers going back 25 years, and he looked for patterns. Right. Evidence came in that saw Anne Petty at the clipping trade and others that had bought divers' quantities of silver melted down. George Clark, Mary Clark, and George Clark, their son, indicted for clipping and filing the lawful coin of this kingdom. (laughs) Just as if this was a new method for, say, distilling mercury, Newton studied the mechanics of counterfeiting, how it worked. Daniel de Coyner and Catherine de Coyner, his wife, both French people, indicted for clipping 40 Elizabethan shillings. He was found guilty of the high treason, but as to his wife, there being no witnesses she had a hand in the design or was assisting her husband in his unlawful practices, she was acquitted. He saw how counterfeiters might escape the law, such as literally escaping it by leaving the city. So he bought himself justice of the peace appointments in seven counties that ringed London so he could get information, make arrests, and take down operations outside the city without worrying about pesky legal issues of jurisdiction. Newton also realized counterfeiting wasn't a lone wolf kind of crime. Making and distributing the fakes couldn't be done alone. Two most notorious coiners and clippers of money were found guilty of two indictments of high treason apiece. They were both of a gang hmm. and confessed they had for some years been concerned in such practices. This was organized crime involving gangs of people, big-time counterfeiters, <clears throat> William Challoner, hid behind the buyers and utterers who got the fakes out into trade. In the short term, this kept the identities of the counterfeiters secret. But as Newton found out, it also created a weakness. It meant that someone in the chain might be willing to turn informant. This maybe isn't as revelatory as an apple falling on his head, but it certainly changed the course of Newton's work. It's way fun to picture Newton as a big city police inspector, sitting behind a metal desk with a mug, a cake dish, a coffee, 
tobacco smoke swirling around his curly silver wig and demanding that his agents get him the information or they can turn in their gun and badge. Except that no one had badges because, you know, no police, and no one had guns either because they were all called blunderbusses or dragons and they were just as likely to blow your hand off as blow away the bad guy, and Newton definitely didn't smoke. Smoking a pipe. I am unwilling to make to myself any necessities. But Newton's operations did grow bigger, more complicated, until he was running a kind of detective agency headquartered at the Mint. Newton employed thief takers and sometimes mint staff to go out into the streets and track down bad coins and then to follow the chain back from where the coin first appeared to whoever made it. Here's Tom Levinson, author of Newton and the Counterfeiter. Most of all, Newton was really relentless in doing the classic investigative thing. You capture one person. Uh, Counterfeiting is not a solo crime. Those involved in currency were a small group including both those who were making the currency and those who were unmaking it by various schemes. You know, their their affairs and their concerns and hence just their physical routes through the day uh, necessarily overlapped. One of his agents, playing the role of a London coiner on the run from the law, uncovered a nest of counterfeiters in Cambridgeshire who boasted a milling machine very like the one used by the Mint. Records also show that Newton expensed the mint for the cost of a set of clothes one of his agents needed to go undercover to infiltrate a gang of coiners. Newton most certainly paid people for information, too, in addition to dangling the chance to get out of jail or get off a charge in front of them. According to Tom Levinson, between 1696 and 1699, the mint reimbursed Newton 626 pounds, five shillings, and nine pence for all the expenses he incurred in catching coiners. That's around 121,000 pounds in today's money. August paid the keeper of the Savoy prison for sending his man into Lewis in Sussex to apprehend Emery, a coiner. September 19th paid Taylor, an engraver in Holborn, for charges and pains in discovering Williamson and other coiners of several gangs. November 1st, paid Douglas towards the charges of himself and two others and the horses in going 150 miles to apprehend coiners. Some of Newton's agents were more trustworthy than others, but many took advantage of their position. Several ended up in Newgate themselves after turning counterfeiter or trafficking in stolen goods. Still others were known to blackmail people that they were after or run protection rackets. Not that thief-takers even needed to resort to criminal behavior to make the whole enterprise dubiously unjust. They got paid for their arrests based on whether or not the individual was convicted. So they often testified and brought evidence against the people they arrested. The potential for abuse of this was obviously enormous. Newton was also fairly hands-on himself. He interviewed informants and suspects when his agents brought them in. Though many of the depositions were later burnt, Exactly why is an open question, but it was at Newton's order. There's evidence that he took down 58 different depositions in just two months alone. And it wasn't just the depositions. A man who, in his former life, rarely went to the pub, Newton was suddenly spending time in taverns across London, taverns like the Old Bell, the Magpie and Stump, or the Dog, buying drinks and information. 
He also stopped by the prisons sometimes, rewarding good information with the chance to avoid the gallows. There's evidence that he had informant prisoners moved from jail to jail for their safety and for their ability to gather more information. Information, say, on what happened to the Tower Mint's missing dyes. William Chaloner had lobbed his little bomb that the Mint's own officers had sold the dyes to counterfeiters in Newton's first days on the job. Newton, though still not convinced that policing the coin should be his job, scrambled to get information, mostly from coiners already in jail. Thomas White was one of them. White was a convicted counterfeiter awaiting execution in Newgate. He'd been found guilty of coining 40 guineas. But White had also been part of a bigger network, one of more the tripe man's gang, according to the Old Bailey records. What's a tripe man, you ask? It's a man who sells tripe. So White, facing death, started to spill all he could about the vast network of counterfeiters operating in the city. And he agreed with Chaloner that the corruption was deep in the mint itself. He pointed a finger at a moneyer's servant, a man called Hunter, claiming that it was this Hunter guy who sold the mint dyes out of the tower. But who did he sell them to? Well, said White, William Chaloner's gang. Another convicted counterfeiter, a quote, gentleman called Peter Cook, testified that the dyes weren't sold, they were stolen. Also, by William Chaloner's gang. But just before you start thinking that things were looking a bit grim for our friend Mr. Chaloner, there's more. Mint officials naturally began interviewing the Mint staff, people who had actual access to the dyes. An engraver called Scotch Robin told them that the dyes had been stolen, but not by Chaloner, by Thomas White, the original informant. Then Robin hightailed it to Scotland, escaping further embroilment in the whole situation. Honestly, the laws of physics were easier to pin down than whatever happened to those dyes. Newton kept White in jail, squeezing as much information out of him as he could. After every interview in which White gave up more names, names of people he'd helped set up a coining press, for example, or names of criminals who weren't even involved in counterfeiting, Newton would stay White's execution by two weeks. More than 26 weeks later, White was still alive, although barely. Newgate was rough, really rough. More people died from disease than the hangman's noose, for sure. Newton finally arranged for his pardon in May 1697, a full year after White had been convicted and sentenced to death in the first place. But Newton still wasn't any closer to pinning the dye theft on Chaloner. He pulled in more and more people off the street, interviewing dozens of people in August 1696 alone. Some leads pointed to Chaloner, but Newton still couldn't get a fix on him. The most he could get was that Chaloner was somehow involved, and that wasn't enough to get a conviction in court. No one could say that they'd actually seen Chaloner with the dyes. Chaloner, meanwhile, continued to deny to anyone who'd asked that he'd had anything to do with the missing dyes. Instead, he just kept doubling down on his claim that the rot started in the mint itself. Again, Chaloner was not so wrong about that part. Chaloner offered up his own accomplices, Thomas Holloway in particular, to help with the investigation, claiming that the mint needed an outside assistant. Chaloner was making these suggestions through his contacts in Parliament and the Treasury, and he had enough clout that Parliament's Committee on the Mint encouraged Newton to allow Chaloner in. Newton 
gritting his teeth, rebuffed Chaloner's advances. He was not fooled by Chaloner's posturing. Criminals, like dogs, always return to their own vomit. And what's more, he'd taken that oath. I swear that I will not reveal or discover. He refused to allow Chaloner or Holloway anywhere near the mint. Newton and Chaloner were like two planetary bodies moving in elliptical orbits, sometimes away from each other, sometimes approaching. And each time their paths crossed, they learned a little bit more about each other, filed away for future use. But Newton had other counterfeiters to deal with, not to mention the ongoing recoinage itself. So Newton continued in his orbit, and Chaloner followed his. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act 3. Arrest that man! Chaloner decided that if the men wasn't going to let him use his talents mostly legally, why then he'd go back to using them illegally. 
He'd had a bit of money set aside from his Bank of England scam, both what he'd earned through the actual counterfeiting and from his truly audacious reward of 200 pounds, enough to get all the materials and equipment he'd need to set himself up again as a master coin counterfeiter. In the spring of 1697, Chaloner got Thomas Holloway to find a house outside London, in the country, convenient for coining, he said. A place where a lot of noise, a lot of people coming and going, a lot of heat would go unnoticed. Coining, especially on the scale that Chaloner wanted to do, took a lot of energy, a lot of doing. Holloway found a perfect place, a respectable cottage in Egham, Surrey. Egham was a coaching stop town near the banks of the River Thames. It was about 20 miles southwest of the Tower of London and the Mint, and it was far enough away from the city to be out of the warden's sight, but close enough to get the goods back in when the time was right. Challoner's business model was a little different this time. He wanted to instruct Thomas Holloway and his brother, John, on the particulars. They'd split the majority of the profits between the three of them. Chaloner figured if he could teach them how to do it, he could eventually afford to be more hands-off. He'd be a kind of fixer, taking a cut off the top without exposing himself to the danger of real prosecution for actually making the coins. At the Egham house, Chaloner refined his process. First, he decided to make only shillings. Smaller coins meant smaller molds that might be hidden anywhere, he said. Then, he realized, Good fakes relied on the quality of the molds that stamped the image onto both sides of the coin. Less attentive counterfeiters used molds that opened, like clamshells, to allow the molten metal to be poured in and then closed around it. However, these often left marks on the surfaces of the coin because the metal couldn't be sufficiently pressed. So Challoner had made molds that allowed him to essentially inject hot metal into the mold through a channel, more efficiently filling the space. Chaloner was a clever man. Too bad about the whole life crime thing. He then enlisted a new member of his gang, John Pierce, to file and polish the molds. The coins that these molds produced were almost indistinguishable from the real thing. Now all Chaloner needed was to tap into his network of utterers to get the coins sold on the street and they'd be set. But that's not quite how it went down. On May 18, 1697, John Pierce was arrested. The charges weren't even related to coining or counterfeiting, or at least not this coining scam. But Pierce got spooked. Facing Newgate, Pierce told the magistrate everything he knew in the hopes that informing would keep him out of jail. I saw in William Challoner's brother-in-law's house cutters and tools, instruments proper for coining, with which I saw Challoner's brother-in-law, Jack Gravener, actually counterfeit a milled shilling at his house about five or six weeks ago. Piers said that one of Challoner's London gang, a Joyce Hanbury, had asked Piers to make an edging tool like the ones used at the Mint, and that Challoner himself promised him a great deal of money if he got involved. Challoner, he implied, wasn't someone to mess with. Pierce said that Challoner had threatened to turn the law on Gravener, his own family, if Gravener didn't deliver the tools they needed for the Egham operation in two weeks. Pierce added, I have heard this Challoner often say, and particularly within these three weeks, 
that he hath fund the lords of the treasury and the king out of one thousand pounds, and that he would not leave the parliament alone till he had fund them likewise, which I understood to be deceiving them. This was incredible news, a witness ready to squeal on Chaloner. This would be gold to Newton. But remember, there's no sort of organized system keeping track of suspects and criminals. No one actually shared this information with Newton until August, well after Pierce had been released. In fact, Newton only heard about Pierce's testimony by complete chance. He happened to be in the Secretary of State's offices when someone mentioned that this Pierce guy had information on William Chaloner. Newton had Pierce picked up and brought straight to his offices in the Tower Mint in the hopes of shaking more concrete, actually damning information out of him. Because while what Pierce had was good, it wasn't enough for Newton to move against Chaloner. Newton needed Pierce to get more, so he sent him back out on the street. Then another stroke of luck. Thomas Holloway, Chaloner's closest mate, was arrested. This is a bit like Al Capone's arrest for tax evasion. Holloway got done for an unpaid debt. Newton saw his chance. He sent Pierce to Holloway, still in debtor's prison, with a mission. Tell him anything that will get you into Chaloner's operation at Egham. Holloway fell for it. Holloway sent Piers down to Egham with his blessings, and Piers was brought even further into Chaloner's inner circle. In Egham, Piers counterfeited 20 shillings or so to prove his worth to the gang. And then he went back to Newton to tell all. And that was enough. Newton had Holloway, still in jail on unpaid debt, charged with counterfeiting. And suddenly, he had two witnesses who had good reason to rat out William Chaloner. Newton still hadn't found or connected Chaloner with the missing dyes, but it didn't matter. He had witnesses. For weeks, Holloway refused to talk. Pierce was kept on ice in jail, where he was, of course, miserable. He wrote to a friend, I'm afraid it will go very hard with me. This place is very dismal to me. He was terrified, too. He knew that others in Chaloner's gang, including John Holloway, were going to give evidence against him. I hope you will go to the warden and entreat him for to consider of my misfortunes at this time, and I hope if I can get out once more, I shall be more serviceable to the government. Newton was now pulling together the threads out of the missing dyes debacle and Chaloner's claims that the mint itself was corrupt, rotten. He'd learned how to get information, how to play members of the same gang off each other. Chaloner, meanwhile, was unaware of just what was stacked against him. After all, no one's getting smartphones airlifted by drone into Newgate Jail in 1697, so it's not like Holloway or Piers could get word to him what was up. Whatever he had heard, he wasn't worried. Momentarily pausing his coining operation, Chaloner decided to work on yet another scheme. Hubris, thy name be Chaloner. Remembering the successful scam with the Jacobite printers, he and a man named Aubrey Price came up with a plot to present some trumped-up evidence to the Lord's Justice of a Jacobite conspiracy to mount an attack on Dover Castle. Then, the plan went, they'd offer themselves as undercover agents to infiltrate the conspirators. For a steep reward, of course, respecting the danger they were putting themselves in. 
Whatever the merits of that particular plan, Chaloner and Price made the mistake of waltzing into the halls of the Lord's Justice at the wrong time. The very wrongest time, actually. Because right at that moment, Isaac Newton was also at the Lord's Justice, giving evidence in the case of another counterfeiter. And he just spent several weeks getting information out of peers and others about what Chaloner was up to during his summer vacation. Newton finished his testimony, left the room. He passed a man in the hall, a very familiar man, a man who he knew to be running a counterfeiting operation down in Surrey, a man he'd spent the last month building a case against. Arrest that man! And on September 4th, 1697, Chaloner found himself in Newgate Jail once again. Only this time... There were no earls, no highly placed government officials, no bank governors willing to spring him. Isaac Newton finally had his man. Or did he? Coming up on Newton's Law. Classic sort of mafia, what we now think of as mafia-organized crime techniques of, of systematically dismantling the case that's about to be presented against you until there was nothing left. Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy, with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Voice acting by Keith Fleming, Robbie Jack, and Ruthie Stevens. Special thanks to Harry Potter, Chris Barker, and Tom Levinson. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatikudur and Finiflex Sound Studios. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Thanks for listening. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.